When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome to the Second Captain's Podcast at the start of a week that features both the Republic of Ireland away to France in a pivotal Euro qualifier and the beginning of Ireland's Rugby World Cup campaign. There's so much going on in the next few days. It's worth giving everyone a little breakdown of how the podcast is going to look. Wow. Both to give our members a steer on what to expect and hopefully to give our non-members a hint of envy, Murph. Okay. I was going to say FOMO. I don't know if that's a, that acronym has been used in the last decade. But you know what I mean? Just enough to get them thinking about signing up. Yeah, they, hey, are okay. rendered, they are rendered obviously a lot quicker these days. <laughs> it is You true. know, phrases like FOMO. Tomorrow, Rugby World Cup preview pod featuring Shane Horgan, Andrew Trimble and our friend in New Zealand, Scotty Stevenson. <laughs> Wednesday, France Ireland preview with Richie Sadler in Dublin and Ken Erdy in Paris. <laughs> Thursday, reaction to the Ireland team to play Romania in a World Cup opener. Wow. And I'm sure a little bit more France Ireland build up, I'm sure. Friday's podcast will be your France versus Ireland post match show, which we will deliver to you late on Thursday night. Murph, we'll watch it here if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Ken, you'll be watching it at the Parc des Princes, not the Stade de France, mm. which is out of commission. I just informed you <laughs> not an hour ago. You're all set for the Stade de France, Ken. I hope this doesn't impinge on your. Logistics too much. Well, you know, I I do. How badly did it impact your logistics then? My um, place of residence in Paris is <laughs> very conveniently located for the high-speed train connection to the Stade de France. <laughs> uh, not so uh, well located for the mm. the long schlep out to the 16th, <laughs> where the in the western uh, outskirts of the city. That's unfortunate. Well, okay, get yourself. Stay, just stay, I presume. France, New Zealand is on in the Stade de France, is it? Just bag yourself a ticket for that. Stay an extra night. That's I an amazing be, occasion to be at. I will be on a plane when that match is happening. So mm. that's uh, that was some bad planning by you, wasn't it? Well, Again. I thought it was. I thought it was good planning. I thought, well, look, you know, I'll get. Uh, it's an even fight. It's cheaper. Um, surprisingly cheap, actually, for a Friday night. Um, <laughs> it's 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 a cheaper flight, and uh, you know, and and it'll mean that I won't be rushing. Yeah. yeah, I won't be yeah. rushing in the morning, you know, because I thought I'd have to talk to you and and I'll take a bit of pressure off, you know, and and all that. And it turns out that actually I'm going to miss France, New Zealand as well. As You're going to be at the Parc de Prince though, Ken. What a, what a place. Evocative of the greats of French rugby, Serge Blanco, Philippe Saint-André and French football, of course, as well. Mm. Mm. Platini, Jures, Tigana, Cisse, Hernandez. 
Giles. <laughs> Le Fault de Giles. Le Fault de Giles. Oh, yeah. Let's not, I hope we're not having too many of those moments. No. Le Fault de Collins. Or something like that. That post-match pod is going to be late on Thursday night. It seems like a good week to be a member, I think. So yeah. you know, Most weeks are old, but this is a particularly, particularly good week. Particularly so, especially now we have the hottest young striker in European football in our national team. Secondcaptains.com, five or a month was fat. I've got a call here that says, you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh God. That's just it. I just Whoa. mentioned, not you, no me. Okay, ain't nobody f***ing with my click, 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 click. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. We don't normally click, broadcast all click, the, the stuff that click, comes from scum click, around the country. Click. Frank Riley emails in to editor at secondcaptains.com with a Rugby World Cup dilemma. Andrew Trimble's understandable angst last week about our South Africa pool game got me thinking. Ireland's World Cup success will be based on whether or not we make it to a World Cup semi-final. To do this, over four weeks, our squad will have to play consecutive attritional matches against Tonga, South Africa, Scotland and a quarter-final against France or New Zealand. I see Frank is overlooking the challenge Romania are going to pose in our uh-huh. opening. The perceived benefits of coming top of the group are negligible. We could play a full-strength team against South Africa, win, pick up a couple of injuries to key players and lose in the quarter-final. While a quarter-final against the All Blacks is at present a slightly more attractive opposition than playing the French. I'm not sure the difference is worth going for broke and backing ourselves to win the four matches in four weeks without picking up serious injuries to our squad. I understand that momentum is very important in international tournaments and it's unlikely that Andy Farrell would adopt such a defeatist approach. But as Ernest Shackleton said, better a live donkey than a dead lion. What do you think of Frank's uber negative attitude, Ken? I think it's completely ridiculous, Owen. What, I mean, momentum is important in, in a tournament like the World Cup. You know what's even more momen- uh, important than momentum? Mm-hmm. Points. Qualifying out of your pool. Yeah, you need to actually get the points. And in order to do that, you have to try and win the games. And you can't just say, yeah, we're probably going to you know, get a lot of injuries against the Africa. So let's just can that one. Because you can still... You, they can still Scotland. beat up the guys. That, yeah. They can still beat up the guys who who you have to send out. By the way, oh yeah, who you would or, or also have to use to step in for the first teamers who are presumably going to have to play at some stage in this pool, unless we're writing Scotland off as well. Here, imagine, just, do you remember imagine 2007? The big issue is we wrapped everyone in cotton. We wrapped our first fifteen in cotton wool for too long before the tournament. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, I think everyone's accepted that was an issue. Now we're going to wrap them in cotton wool right through the pool stage. Imagine if you're <laughs> Scotland. Imagine oh, watching yeah. Ireland say. Oh well, obviously we can beat the Scots, so we're just going to pick. A, we're going to pick a second team against South Africa. Who cares? I mean, sure, we could send out whoever the you know we could send out whoever the hell we In like. Fairness to Frank, I think Frank is specifically talking about a South African. I, I, it's not clear, but I do feel he maybe feels that, that yeah, you do. You got to you got to beat the Scots, so maybe play your best team there. But just why offer up sacrificial oh. lambs to the seven forwards coming off the South yeah. African? Bench? Oh, but, but 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 what I'm saying is, if you're Scotland. You're literally watching us play a second team oh, because, because you're, you're, just you're presuming that yeah, we're going yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, obviously we're qualifying out of the pool. I mean, we've got yeah. some minnows last up. We, you know, rack up, a, you know, fifty points on. Oh God, he didn't drop that, did he? Yeah, he did. He did, Doodle. He did right on the trial. We're also the number one team in the world, by the way. <laughs> yeah, there, there is something. There, it would be nice to give. A, I can't believe we're taking this suggestion so seriously. Mm. But there is a certain thing called a statement of intent. Mm. And I would like to do that by delivering South Africa yeah. a good beating. I'm yeah. surprised. We, I'm surprised we even read that email there. Yeah. I, I thought that I thought there was an, there was an email from a guy who overheard two other guys talking in the pub about refereeing corruption, which I think was better than that. <laughs> 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 that camera, he says email, but he's like. I heard, I overheard guys in the pub talking about how the referees the, for the three o'clock games are all are all uh, bent, <laughs> you know. 
I'm not sure, but I do think it's indicative of the attitude that we have now. You know, that people are, and I, I think we should have gone with that email. Well, listen, Ken, I'm trying to big up our World Cup rugby preview mm. show tomorrow, rugby World Cup preview show tomorrow, which is why I've chosen to yeah. read out this email. Of course, we'll also know, I suppose, you know, who, whoever loses the France-New Zealand game is more than likely, you know, th- that's going to decide the placings in that pool. So, I mean, you know, it, it, when we get to the Scotland game, and hopefully we've beaten South Africa, we can actually say, maybe we better lose this game. And then we play our second team. Yeah. That's a better sure idea to be than... Yeah, and that would really go down well with France or New Zealand, whoever we want to draw in the quarterfinals. I'm sure yeah, they'd be happy. Yeah, but that'd I mean, be good. the Scots are dirty competitors. You know, there, I mean, yeah. I think they've, they've cleared out a lot of the dead wood from that, from that squad. And, you know, Scotland, they could take a big scalp in this World Cup. On don't sleep on the Scots. That's Listen, what I'm saying. Ken, you've got your football podcast. There's plenty in there for our listeners to get stuck into. A lot of... <laughs> A lot of Evan Ferguson talk. Well found, Simon. Well found. <laughs> Caitlin Thompson on the show today to talk about another potential Carlos Alcaraz Novak Djokovic showdown in the final of the US Open. A little bit about that. We wanted to talk to Caitlin about Carlos Alcaraz, but in the meantime, some of the American challengers might they might just get in the way first because the Yanks are back, baby. You cannot be serious. Serious, <laughs> serious big match. Was that a super brat? Oh yeah, super brat himself, John McEnroe. What a brat. brat. He was a brat, wasn't he? It's been 20 years since Andy Roddick. A slightly bratish character as well, Andy Roddick. Ah, he mellowed a lot in later years, I feel like. Well, it's 20 years since he won the men's title, but they've got three players into the quarterfinals and will have at least one into the semifinal. This is of the men's, I should say, Mm. obviously. (laughs) They've had one or two decent... Women's players over the last little while. A couple of Williamses and so yeah. on. Coco Goff is leading the way in the women's at the moment. She beat Caroline Wozniacki last night in three sets. Seemed unhappy with the chatter coming from her coach, Brad Gilbert, though, in her box. There was a lot of her turning to the box and saying, please, 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 stop. please stop talking. Please stop talking. <laughs> Did you it notice actually, you were watching it last it night? Was, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, Gilbert is kind of, you know, he's quite an abrasive character. I mean, he's on Twitter quite a bit. And... Um, yeah, and so for like for the first set, it was, yeah, he's talking a lot, but that seems to be okay. And then Wozniacki won the second set, and Coco Goff was just like, I just, I need to not hear from you now for like <laughs> 10 minutes or so. <laughs> I'm just going to sort this one out myself, which she duly did. Yeah, and apparently eschewed all the tactical instruction he was giving her. Yeah, and yeah, just basically yeah, just went aggressive herself and yeah, no, I, I got the thing sorted. just need you to just shut she the hell up. She was keen after the match to accentuate her positive relationship with her coach. I don't know if you guys knew this. I guess my favorite Brad story is he played pretty much every match with a Jolly Rancher in his mouth. Um, so he's been giving me Jolly Ranchers like all the time. And I I take them, but I don't eat them because I'm like, at this point, I cannot have Jolly Ranchers like every five minutes. Uh, so that's my favorite Brad story, just the Jolly Rancher thing. And also, like, he doesn't like even numbers. He only likes odd numbers. So whenever he says something, if you ask him what time it is, he's going to say like 153 or 159. He won't say 12 or something basic. He, so that's my favorite Brad story. He's just a quirky really quirky man and yeah and he doesn't sleep he wakes up at 3 30 every morning he was doing this in dc he woke up at 3 30 every morning he goes for walks and he also has been sending me like crazy playlists of like 60s and 70s bands but i haven't kept kept up with it i can see where you might be at your end of your tether with that guy by the time you actually it actually comes to playing a tennis match <laughs> yeah, and having to listen to his tactical instruction I, I, I hope every game goes to three sets just so i don't need to have conversations with this jolly ranchers those are rock hard those sweets mm. i'm just just googling yeah. brad gilbert teeth <laughs> um, I can't really. I but did he ever even? Did he ever eat any of the jolly right? It seems like it was just. Uh, you don't have to eat them, Owen. Yeah, once they make contact with those teeth, they're dissolving in yeah. the the jolly rancher and the. Never quite took off in Ireland, did they? The same the jolly rancher. Ah, uh, you know, Owen. They were. I certainly. They were around. A few of them no, they were around and about, time. but I don't remember them ever really kind of cornering the market. 
Yeah, they were they were they were thing on. Here's Caitlin. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What does it look like? A turtle, is it? Yobs. There's an incredible podcast on at the moment produced by the second captain's biggest load of bollocks. The second captain's show in Ireland. We're now getting to that point now where we are inspiring. The second captain's podcast. Pretty much we've done for the last 20 years. Be role models to kids. <laughs> Hey, Pat, do you want to split? American tennis has never been hotter, screamed the headline of a recent piece in Vanity Fair by Caitlin Thompson, head of this year's US Open. And that thesis is being borne out, I think, by events in New York, Caitlin. I think you're right. Uh, and I can't wait to talk to you guys about it. So tell us, what is what? How, why do you think US tennis is so hot right now? And how is that being borne out at Flushing Meadows? It's a good question. And I think, you know, I got a lot of feedback on that piece. I was asked to write that piece by my friend Radika, who edits the magazine, who I've known since we worked at Time Magazine, you know, it's coming up on 15 years ago. And I appreciate her trusting me with it. And the main point I wanted to make with it was just this cohort of Americans has finally discarded the baggage that has, I think, burdened most generations since tennis in America really had its golden age or its most recent golden age, I should say, um, you know, with the the men, certainly in the in the 90s with Agassi and Sampras and Chang and Martin and Courier. Um, you know, the women had a little bit of a later peak. Obviously, the, the Williams sisters in one case uh, are still competing. But really, outside of the Williams, an American woman um, really hasn't made much of a dent in the American tennis scene. You know, we had a one-off from Sloan. Madison Keys has made some deep runs. But right now, this cohort of especially young Americans doesn't care about any of that. They're not being asked about it in press. If they are, they kind of shrug it off. And that's something new that I really wanted to emphasize. It's not that they're good and that they're good in different ways and that the men and the women are both good at the same time. Although all those things are true. Mm-hmm. It's just that they don't, they don't come with the, the, the weight 
of what I think everybody else has kind of felt where they were, you know, kind of competing in the shadows of, of who came before. Yeah, I saw Ben Shelton last night. I didn't know anything about this young man. He's 20 years of age. Apparently needed to apply for a passport just to get over to the Australian mm. Open recently. Hadn't been out of the country before, which I guess is not uncommon among teenagers. I feel I think the point was made on Sky Sports last night that that maybe is more shocking to European viewers yeah. and English and UK and Irish viewers than it was than it might be to, to American. But what's true me about it was just post-match he was just reveling in the whole thing he looked extremely relaxed and comfortable in this environment which I think goes to what you were saying there about there being for whatever reason that these younger players have shed the baggage somewhat I think also the the thing that helps them is that they have each other you know one of the points that I made in the piece is that you know Ben Shelton who you just mentioned you know he came up uh at the University of Florida with the most sort of intense berserker SEC conference NCAA energy. And for anybody who doesn't know those acronyms, I'm talking about college tennis. Like college tennis for Americans has been a little bit more the showcase these last like decade or two because there has been so little, you know, success at the at the pro level, especially for the men. So Ben Shelton is used to having an entire stadium cheering against him. Ben Shelton is used to having a circus-like atmosphere because of this college tennis battle-tested um, you know, persona he brings into a tournament like the U.S. Open, which can, I think, a lot of times be very overwhelming for people. But I think the bigger point here is he's had a little bit older than him, but but in his same, you know, sort of age range, Tommy Paul and Francis Tiafo, the same way that, um, you know, the women have had not only the Williams sisters, but also um, you know, Jessica Bugula and Coco Goff and, uh, you know, Madison Keys ahead of them and Sloan, you know, it, it feels like no one player shoulders the burden where I think if it's, if you're the Lone Ranger, it feels for a lot of people, not everyone. And obviously superstars can prove us wrong because they can, they can weather anything. But I think for a lot of people, that pressure of not having, uh, to be the only one is kind of lifted by the fact that there's a big group of them. And I think that's that's sort of an interesting thing. And again, I, I'm not particularly, you know, nationalistic. I'm not, you know, chanting USA, USA with my face paint in the stands. But it's just sort of an interesting phenomenon because it hasn't happened in a long time. I also assume it adds a certain frisson. on it. There's got to be a certain excitement when all the American players are getting on a roll together. For sure. I mean, I think that is... Uh, especially during the U.S. swing of the tour, which is happening right now. But I think, yeah, I mean, they're they're asking in on-court, uh, you know, post-match interviews, how the scores of the other ones are doing. You know, I think there's like a, a sort of cognizance that it's a little bit of a rising tide lifting all boats. So I'm, I'm, it's fun to watch because I, I think, you know, we haven't had it in a long time, but also it's fun to watch when players are enjoying themselves playing tennis. And I say that across the board. And that's something that if you watch, you know, especially like later year, Andy Roddick, for example, or some of the women who maybe broke through like watching Madison keys after she got to his U S open final pretty much for the last decade up until really this year has looked not super happy to be there, you know? And I think it's just more fun to watch players who have a smile on their face who are excited. And if, if it's because they're coming up in a group and pushing each other, then you know, uh, that's a great that's a great reason. Yeah, and the crowds have been huge so far this year. I'm not, but, but I'm looking at Francis Tiafo. I mean, he might be the most charismatic male player on on the tour. He's American. He's playing in this extremely raucous uh, crowd uh, at a pretty raucous event. How much of a factor can the crowd be for a guy like Tiafo? Because I'm watching him, thinking this is not a guy who's going to shrink under 
the sort of pressure of you know a big big uh, Grand Slam atmosphere. No, not at all. And and honestly, given the way he has played the last couple of weeks, I'm a little shocked that he's still in the tournament. Um, you know, he had some early losses in the first uh, round or two of the last couple of uh, of bigger tournaments that he's played in Cincinnati and in the Canadian Open before that. So it's actually sort of it's a little ironic because he loves the crowd energy so much, as you just mentioned. However, the next match he plays is against Ben Shelton, who might actually not who who might be a little split. My hope is, and this is my favorite thing at tennis matches, when not not again, regardless of the nationality, but when the crowd decides they like both players and then they, that gives everyone the space to just cheer for tennis. Or it changes, Caitlin. I like the ones where it sort of changes over time as well. People go into it sometimes as we all do watching sport. Not really sure, even before the first serve is hit, who we're supporting in this mm. one. And then it, it just dawns on us after all, yeah, yeah, no, I'm a Shelton guy for sure this this week or whatever it might be. Yeah, maybe that'll happen. Like maybe the, the crowd will shift allegiances several times. I am excited. I'm going that day, all day and all night, and wherever they put that match on, I will be there. And <laughs> and I don't usually say that about men's tennis, uh, which I just like drastically do not prefer to women's tennis. But I will expect that the atmosphere will be electric. I guess is the best word I could say. It's, it would be it will be electric. They're not going. None of them are going all the way, though. Surely the men. Nobody's done it. Uh, no American male players won since Roddick twenty years ago. And there are a couple of pretty good non-Americans in there, notably Carlos Alcaraz, who I only realised today, Caitlin, we never spoke about after the drama at Wimbledon. How impressed have you been with how, how Alcaraz has handled his new mantle? Un- unbelievably impressed. And actually, when you were talking about Francis Tiafoe and how much you know he might be the greatest showman, in terms of emotions and in terms of his connection to the audience, absolutely. In terms of his tennis, he doesn't hold a candle to Carlos Alcaraz. And that's not just in terms of level. It's more just... Although that's true. It's just more like Carlos Alcaraz ceiling and his ability to summon his best tennis was truly best embodied in the Wimbledon final. That's why that final was so electric, because Novak Djokovic has become and in that match demonstrated sort of the Robert Patrick character from Terminator 2, (laughs) where he just keeps learning. He's like AI, which is a headline I stole from a a writer I really admire. I think it was Kara Connor in in GQ or New York Mag. But like he he machine learns you. And so the first time you face him, you might you might get the better of him, but it won't happen again. And so what was amazing about that match is that Novak Djokovic had bested Carlos Alcaraz in the French Open and at Wimbledon, it was like they were improving each other during the match <laughs> in a way that was really cool. And it emphasized my central emotional thesis about tennis, which has not been true while we've had an Iga and a Novak occupying much of the, the space at the top of the sport, which is that good offense should always be good defense. I like that to be true. I want that to be true. And it hasn't been true. Um, really for the the better part of the last couple of years on both tours with with Iga being super dominant and definitely with Novak being so for more than 10 years, 20 years. And so for me, the fact that Carlo, Carlos Alcaraz's ceiling might be higher than Novak Djokovic because of his offensive style is just like such a, it's a gift to all of us, but really it's a gift to me. Wow, do you say his, <laughs> yeah, his ceiling might be higher than Djokovic is unbelievable. So this very much is the guy now, isn't it? The, in terms of the future of men's tennis, he's he's very young, but there's no reason to suggest he can't become the next all-timer. 
He's doing something different. I think that's what's exciting about it. And I think, you know, for me, I always resist trophy count. Um, so instead, I will commit to the idea that he is inventing a new style of play that I hope the DNA is dispersed and being watched and learned uh, all over the world by people who didn't think it was possible. The same way that each and every one of the big three changed our conception of what was possible. The way that, you know, Venus and Serena, just even the way they served, they served like men because their dad coached them to serve like a man and not this slice serve that most male coaches feel like women need to handle. And that might be a really obscure and specific example, but I think it's, it's more indicative of the idea that, you know, sometimes you have to see it to believe that it's possible. And I think what Carlos Alcaraz does, we haven't seen before. In, in what way? What, specifically, what is he doing? He's sort of creating this hybrid blend of offense from a defensive position, which we've seen from Novak, you know, extreme sort of competitive tenacity, which obviously we, we know and love from Rafa, and the creative spirit that, that Federer and that sort of floating movement. But he's doing all three, and he's adding a drop shot with feathery touch. Which, I love the drop again, shot, yeah. The drop shot's insane, and it, it happens at insane times. You would never coach anybody to do it. And and again, that's one of many shots that he has where you're just sort of like, that shouldn't actually be possible. And so to to describe his set of tools is really the only way to describe it. Like He has kind of every one of the greatest hits of everybody else, including Nick Kyrgios's like jumping laser forehand, which nobody else has, except Carlos Alcaraz, who can do it not only... Um, on a fun big point, which Kyrgios can do, but he can do it in, in a rally, which Kyrgios cannot do. So you're kind of like, holy crap, this guy actually is inventing tennis as we watch. And that's a feeling that you don't get very often. I think he gets energized by that drop shot as well. Certainly in that Wimbledon final, he was hitting these drop shots. He disguises them so well, firstly. So even somebody as quick as Djokovic struggles to get to them. And it seemed to me when he was winning them, he'd be giving jo- when he- he'd be tempting Djokovic in. Jo- Djokovic can't get to it. He then gives him the stare down, uh, which Djokovic likes. I think he actually enjoys that element of it as well. But it all seems like those, those he you're talking about some of the players enjoying the way they play tennis. It seems like Alcaraz enjoys all that power that he has all those those tools he has it looks like it and that's it's sort of infectious and I think for that reason you know Djokovic is such a pattern player that what he does is really wears you down by patterns it which is incredibly smart if incredibly dull and you know to be fair Murray plays the same way it's just incredibly dull tennis by attrition Novak Djokovic is just much better at it than Murray ever was but what what Alcaraz is doing is is not is taking the kind of level of risk that should be unacceptable and yet using it to his advantage and it's just it's sort of insane i play um i play backgammon regularly with one of my friends and and the only way i can liken it to to anything is just he should never win based on how outrageous his risk tolerance is and sometimes he loses very badly but often he wins and it's sort of insane to watch because it's so unsafe it's so not expected. And I think that's why it's really fun to watch him play against Djokovic because um, it shouldn't work, and yet it does. And it's brilliant. And it seems inevitable that they're going to play again um, in this tournament, which, I, you know, playing playing tennis and watching tennis, you know that anybody can beat anybody. But this does feel sort of faded in a way that 
Um, you know, I can't I can't wait to watch more of it. And I truly haven't said that about a Novak Djokovic match. Yeah. Since since the days of the impressions, honestly. Yeah, yeah no, we've had you, we've had John Penny <laughs> talking about Novak oftentimes. I mean, as everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. Tell us then, you mentioned you're not an Iga super fan either. Iga Swantek well, has been knocked out of this one, so you'll be happy enough with that. Does that open it up for some of the American women? Yes. Uh, and I feel like I personally manifested that win. So <laughs> if anyone would like to give me some kind of uh, credit or energy, I'm I'm happy to take it because Yelena Ostapenko is just the kind of crazy, crazy wild card that Ego would hate to play. And what happened uh, yesterday with their match was just so satisfying on a deeply emotional level because Iga is incredible. She's a great mover. She takes every ball early. Andrea Pekovic, who I have never known to tell a lie, told me that she hits the ball on average harder than every other woman on the tour. That said, she hits with so much spin and so much margin that it never looks like she's out of position or taking a risk. That's brutally effective, but it's also, for me, terribly boring. And so because of that, it's just really hard sort of emotionally to get behind her, even though, you know, textbook wise, it's it's very perfect. But now it doesn't matter because Iga's out of it, which opens up the tournament entirely. Um, we have, I would say, four legitimate contenders left, which is more than you can usually say at this stage of a, of a tournament in, honestly, either side of the draw. Coco Goff? Coco Goff one of those? I would say Coco Goff is the least likely. Hmm. So it seems like I've joined the Coco Goff uh, bandwagon at a rather inopportune time then, because I did. I mean, listen, I would be happy to be wrong because (laughs) she's so likable and she's so thoughtful and she's such a wonderful kid. And her new coaching team has gotten her in a, in a really good headspace and kind of fixed some of the issues on her forehand. I just personally can't see her compete her. See, I, I just still see her ceiling as being lower than everybody else's as much as I like her. And as much as I think it would be great for tennis if she lifted the trophy. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm interested to hear you mention her coaching team because uh, <laughs> as I was watching it uh, last night, it was extremely funny to have a mic. I mean, I don't know how recently this happened, but they basically had a microphone directly underneath Brad Gilbert. So you could hear like the just back and forth for the entire game, uh, particularly during the second set, which Wozniacki won when Coco Goff was just like, can you please stop talking? And like, so it was like this, this entire drama being played out while the game was also happening. Uh, so it was very funny. So her coach is Brad Gilbert. And, you know, uh, Brad Gilbert is, you know, like uh, on Twitter the whole time, is a bit of a celebrity in and of himself. And I was just kind of thinking, like, at what stage is this just kind of for the cameras? Like, like, like I, di- I just didn't understand what was actually going on there. So maybe, like, my question really is, what did Brad, did Brad Gilbert think that he could actually change the course of the game as he was saying these things to Coco Goff last night? And to what extent is it actually just annoying for a player to hear a coach talk to that extent during a game? It's a real, I mean, there are so many layers to the question that you just asked me. Like, the thing that comes to mind first is n- none of the questions you asked me, which is how much of a conflict of interest is it to have a commentator who is both an active coach on court with the expectation that he's going to provide on court match reports and also actively coaching a player. So <laughs> setting that aside, and I like Brad Gilbert, so that's not to pick on him because it's pretty rife in the sport. Setting that aside, I think it makes for incredible television. So I kind of don't care. Yeah. For yeah, me, yeah, yeah. coaching the brief period when the WTA was miking up coaching and allowing on court visits. Um, 
and I don't know actually where the rule stands right now for coaching. It's just sort of an accepted practice. And I don't think umpires care about it anymore, but obviously if you were, you know, Serena Williams and Nomi Osaka three years ago and Patrick Maradou got dinged and you got in trouble for it, it, it mattered quite a bit. So I'm not, I'm not trying to brush aside the controversy of just the, the fact that it happens. I think when I talk about Coco Goff's coaching, I'm actually not talking about Brad Gilbert, although he's been an interesting and sort of like lively addition and maybe given her some swagger and honestly some distance from her former team, which I don't think optimized her as much. But actually, I'm talking about Per Reba, the Spaniard, who was working with Chin Wen Zheng, the woman I just mentioned, who's like the most explosive Chinese player, because he made a tactical change in Coco's game. And forgive me for getting like super pedantic here, but just since you asked. Coco Goff's grip is awful. And I know it's awful because I had it for 20 years and literally every coach I ever had tried to change it. And it's just, you can't, you cannot, the way she hits it, be as good as she needs to be to win a Grand Slam, which is why all the players pick on it. And what Pierre Reba has done is he's taken it from a weakness to a neutral shot. Maybe with more work, he can even turn it into her weapon. But right now, all the players are used to hitting to it. And now he has changed her footwork on it. You can't really change the grip, but you can change the footwork so that it's not late and loopy, essentially. And to me, that actually tactically has allowed her to not have a weak wing. And Brad Gilbert, you know, with all of his sort of hoopla and stuff. And again, I really like him. He's like a fun commentator and he really knows his stuff. Obviously, he wrote a book called Winning Ugly, which I think applies across all spectrums of life, which is just, you know, would you rather... Lose pretty or win ugly. I don't know. Take your pick. But for me, um, I actually think she kind of likes the back and forth because she's had her parents on tour with her for so long and she's had Murata Glue and his folks in her box for so long. So the fact that it kind of changes the dynamic and he's sort of a character, maybe actually takes some of the focus away from her and the mm. pressure that she feels. Mm. So honestly, whatever they're doing is working because she is as close to optimized as I've ever seen her. And again, I say this both as a fan, but also somebody who believes she has a lower ceiling than other players. And I think she's getting close to her ceiling, which is a real testament to the fact that she's put in a ton of work and her team around her might actually be like the right ones for success. How has your own US Open been, Caitlin? I see you guys had your tennis court on Rockefeller Center, Rockefeller Plaza there, which is looking great. Thank you. Yeah, we um, we did a residency at Rockefeller Center thanks to um, our partners there who let us build a playable tennis court and leave it up not only for the four days of Racket House, but also for a whole week that we made open and free to the public, which I'm like quite proud of. Um, and then we had four days uh, of of encore programming and rooftop parties with, you know, Fila, Yonex and Aperol Spritz, which was cool. And, you know, sorry to plug my sponsors, but like it was amazing because they all sort of supported what we were trying to do, which is connect the youth culture in the city to the tennis in a way that, you know, the U.S. Open is great. Anybody who's ever been to one of these Grand Slams knows they're frantic, they're circuses, they're amazing but they tend to attract in terms of attendance, a lot of the same types of folks. And if you can bring tennis to places where people live, that's not out in sort of a train right away because people can access it and feel like it's talking to culture. That to me is how you grow the sport and make it feel a little bit more relatable. So I think, you know, for me, we had clinics and parties and DJs and photo booths and, you know, an on arbitrage and a cool suit and all that stuff. But the thing that I'm the most proud of is we ended this, the, the racket house residency at Rockefeller center with a, um, a panel on the future of women's tennis with Victoria Azarenka, the woman called Jennifer Lum, who's on the WTA Ventures board, Renee Stubbs, 
Shelby Rogers, uh, Kimberly Selden, who founded Black Girls Tennis Club, and Alyssa Yonayama, the CEO of Yonex, who's the first female CEO of a racket company, and just had them talking about what 50 years after the founding of the WTA is the real situation for women's tennis, both recreationally, but also at the pro level. And I think if you understand anything about tennis and what's going on right now in terms of you know, the tour potentially taking Saudi money. Obviously, there's there's still a ton of issues with uh, whether or not to allow or or sanction Russian and Belarusian players. Obviously, China's sort of a big looming question. You know, I just I feel most proud about the fact that we could use the racket platform to do what I hope the tours do more of, which is have public, transparent, tough conversations because they make the sport better. And that's what we should all be doing. And honestly, that's what we're doing now, which I'm I'm really grateful for as, as ever. Caitlin, we're always grateful to have you on. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. This is the Intrigant National and uh, I just can't believe we won. It's unbelievable. David Goff emails Subject Ken wrong about the devil <laughs> Hi folks A few episodes back Ken and Murph were having a chat About when the subject Of who would play the devil Came up And Ken scoffed at the idea Of a short man playing the part I would like to bring Ken's attention To the movie The Devil's Advocate Where a towering Al Pacino Was cast as the devil One would expect He did a fine job With the part And I put it to Ken That the devil in human form Must be played By a short man You must, under- you must underestimate the devil That's part of his plan Let me give you A little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear, for his own amusement, his own private 
cosmic gag reel. He sets the rules in opposition. The clock. It's the goof yeah. of all time. <laughs> Look, but don't touch. <laughs> and while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's laughing his sick fucking ass off. He's a tight ass. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? Why not? I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. Just 1.67 meters, Al Pacino can. Yeah, but he's a, he's a film actor. You, know, you, yeah. don't, you often don't see film actors. Uh, many Tom Cruise is a short man. Many of them look at their small men with massive heads. Mm. Right? Because that's, it's, it's, they're the physical attributes that you want for, to be a great film Bulgy, actor. Bulgy, of course. Even smaller again. They don't, you, but you often they're Fast not. Fassbender, we met in real life, Murph, shorter than I'd imagined. See, he seems tall. Yeah, right. He's you, you, you'd think he's a, he's a big guy, right? But no, no, no. So you know that's that. But you, you they're not often put in exposed situations where you know they're standing next to somebody who's much taller or whatever. You know, you, it's they, they tend of to kind there's. of your Neesons, a, your Eastwoods, your bit Stewarts of, of this world. They're yeah. pretty. They were all pretty tall. Schwarzenegger, not that tall. Barely six foot. Really? Yeah, no, I see. Been like a big brick shithouse, only. He's well built, though. I thought he was six foot two at least. You know. I'm gonna Google that now, but I have a funny feeling. The email continues. I think the film was shite, but I can't remember it. It's been so long since I watched it. I was only a kid when I saw it. I remember it has one or two raunchy sex scenes. That was good enough for me. Love the show and love Ken so much. I, re- I really. Says David, just one second, Ken. He signs off as David, five foot eight and three quarters. <laughs> what were you gonna say? <laughs> three quarters. <laughs> I love that. No. Uh, the movie, I, I really enjoyed the movie at the time, The Devil, Devil's Advocate. Not great, though. Ah, come on. It, no. was, ah, it was good enough. I watched it I watched it back recently, Kent. Not great. Ah, it was good enough. I mean, what are you comparing it to? What are you, seriously, what are you comparing it to? All of the other movies I've ever watched in my life. This is the first I'm positive tr- review Kent has given. I'm away. throwing it into the mixer as a grand, but not great movie. Well, you shouldn't compare it to every other movie you've watched because, I mean, like, that's nonsense, you know? There's, there's different Well, that's my frame, of, my frame of reference is all of the movies I've watched. Oh, yeah, and then can't. from there, there's like a... The, at the top of the graph, there's the really good ones. And then at the bottom of the graph, there's really bad ones. And then The Devil's Advocate is right there, right in the middle. No, but it's like, it's like comparing, you know... Um, uh, it's like saying... It's like comparing, you know, a left winger to a, a centre-back. Mm. Like, there are, you know, there are different types of movies... For different needs. Okay. Uh, different, what are you comparing it to? Different moments. Other movies, devil movies. <laughs> devil devil movie. genre. Su- supernatural uh, horror movies. Okay. So we're talking here about... Uh, uh, Meet Joe Black with Brad Pitt. I've never actually seen it. No, I've never. It's three hours long or something. I mean, I, no, come on. No the, the Omen. Um, the, okay, yeah. The course. Exorcist. Yep. Um, Rosemary's Baby. Yep. Um, All three of those movies... Be- well, The Omen. Yeah, no, I'm going to say The Omen is better than The Devil's Advocate. Uh, Be dazzled, Liz Hurdy. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure I've seen that. Google, I, Google has given me that Yeah, Bre- Bre- Brendan Fraser is in it, isn't he? I, saw I can't say I remember the movie uh, too well. The, the Ninth Gate, uh, oh, yeah. uh, which starred Johnny Depp. I, I watched this one recently. And mm-hmm. it's actually from around this. It's the late 90s, same as yep. Devil's Advocate. You know, it's that same sort of era, similar sort of feel. Really awful. Mm. I mean, come on. You know, if we're saying, if we're criticizing Devil's Advocate, you have to place, you have to judge it against its peers. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can't just, 
it doesn't make any sense to judge it against other so, movies. Yeah, it does. No, other. <laughs> yes, I mean no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I Ninth Gate, no good is what you're saying. Ninth Gate, not good. Still, probably worth watching. Just is good. the Devil's Advocate better than The Omen? No. Yeah. See, and again, uh, is it better than The Exorcist? No. The I'm Omen's good though. The Omen's not bad. Yeah. So the come on. Bad. No, I don't know why. When that. Uh, pane of glass flies off the truck. Oh, that was nasty. But you know, the bad business. Yeah. Bad business. Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks, you, Owen. And thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Big week of international sport coming up for our rugby and football teams. Become a member now to hear our analysis of France against Ireland in the football and to hear all of our coverage of the Rugby World Cup. The Second Captain's Podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. You will hear all episodes ad free if you sign up. That's the second time it's gone off. They never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 